Yeah, Emmanuel, God is with us. That makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? You know, when you really stop to think about the stuff that, uh, uh, everything that goes on around us, we sometimes forget that the one person that will always be there is the Lord. And uh, can you imagine if Jesus had refused to come? You know, he made that choice. It says in eternity past, it said that uh, in the counsel of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had sat down. And, and as he looked at this world, he realized that uh, there was only one person. I mean, if anything, was, if anything could save the human race, there would have to be someone volunteer to do that. And that volunteer was Jesus. You know, that's called the covenant of redemption. They, they made that contract. It's, it was a, tr- a, a true covenant of redemption was made. And Jesus said, I will go. And so, you know, as you look at the Old Testament, what were they always doing? They're always building a tabernacle and a temple. But God really was more concerned about something else when that is, as he was going to dwell among his people when Jesus came. But then he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And so the Spirit of God dwells in us because of what Jesus did. Because Jesus, remember, at Pentecost did something. It says that he poured out the Holy Spirit. And that Holy, the Holy Spirit then, for these last 2,000 years, the church has been growing. And it's all because the Lord Jesus commanded uh, through his work, his, his vicarious work on the cross for us, his substitutionary work, he made it, he made it possible. And so in, in sending the Spirit of God, um, that's what we're going to look at this morning in Philippians 2 because it says we're supposed to have the mind of Christ that he had when he came to earth. And that's a, that, that passage of Scripture is probably the clearest passage in all the Bible that tells us that Jesus is God. And so Philippians chapter 2, while it's, it's talking about the incarnation and about the coming of Christ, it has a very practical application to us. And so we're going to pick up with that in verse 5 because we've been looking at this we've been, we, and, and we were looked at some of the reasons that we should have, we should be humble people, uh, that we should have the, the, the attitude of humility. But this is really, uh, you might say, the strongest argument for, that Paul has here. And I'd like, you know, I just kind of give you a thinking. When you're, when you're going through a book like this, I always like to have a real good outline. One of my best outlines I've come up with, and it's not that great, but it helps me understand the book, and that is is that the priority in the Christian life is Jesus, right? For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 there. But secondly, the pattern of our Christian life is the mind of Christ. You know, chapter 2, verse 5, and then you start looking at the mind of Christ. So that's the pattern. Then he's going to talk about the purpose of the Christian life in, in Philippians 3. And what's that? That I might know Christ. And then chapter 4, he's going to talk about the power of the Christian life or uh, the, the purpose of the Christian life. Or not the purpose, but the power of the Christian life. And what's that? I can do all things through Christ. Christ is at the center of everything in the Christian life. And so that's when, when we remove him from the center, then everything gets out of whack. So, so, that, so what we're going to be looking at is the mind of Christ, but that's the pattern that God has for us as Christians. Now, most of you ladies, and now, I don't know if any men do this, but most of you have a pattern when you sew, right? 
you sell, you know, you know, if you're sewing some kind of, or you're coming, doing some kind of a uh, crocheting or whatever, there's a pattern, right? And without the pattern, you kind of get lost, right? You kind of like, okay, I don't need the pattern. Then all of a sudden you go like, oh man, I've got a mess. <laughs> you need a pattern, right? Unless it's a crazy quilt, okay, well, I, I, I can't admit, I, I admit that I really don't know much about sewing, okay, so the point is, is, but you know, we all have a pattern, whether we want it or not, and the pattern that we have, a lot of times, we'll, we'll do things, and we'll say, you know, that's just like so-and-so, and what happens is that we learn patterns sometimes subconsciously, even the patterns of things that we don't want to do, sometimes we subconsciously do things, and somebody will say, you know, that's just like so-and-so. They do it the same way. Or you look like, you know, there you are, a chip off the old what? Block, right? You know, those patterns just kind of, for some reason, as human beings, we follow patterns. And God knows that. That's how he designed us. And so when he recreates us in Christ, he gives us a pattern, and he says, the pattern that I have for you is to put on the mind of Christ. Now, the question is, God's going to pull back the curtain in Philippians chapter 2. It's kind of like a movie. You know how the movie starts? They, they show you this scene in the middle of the movie. And then they say, now, this is what led up to this. And so what did they do? Three years before, <laughs> and he pull, they pull back the curtain to help us to understand the motive or what actually is happening. Well, what God does in Philippians 2 through uh, the Apostle Paul is God is going to pull back the curtain because when we look at the cross and when we look at the life of Christ and when we look at Jesus as a baby coming in the womb of Virgin Mary, we have to ask ourselves, I don't understand why did he do it? And so what God does here in this passage is that he pulls back the curtain so that we can see God's motive. Why do you think God the Son would have done this for us. And so we're going to look at that in verse 5 here. Notice with me as um, we hear God's inerrant, infallible word. Have this mind among yourself, verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds, but also just to, Father, give us just a, a deeper impression of what it means that Christ humbled himself. Uh, the, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, uh, coming to earth to become a man, uh, taking upon himself humanity. And then stooping and humbling himself to the point of being uh, a servant that would go to the cross in order to conquer death, uh, to crush the head of Satan, and to subdue our enemies. Father, how we thank you for this precious passage of Scripture. We pray that it would, uh, Father, just sink deeply within our hearts that we might have the mind of Christ in our day. Father, because that is the mind that you tell us is 
necessary for the Christian life, that we have this pattern in our heart and mind and our thoughts, and that we might walk in humility before you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. So this uh, passage in Philippians 2, just kind of in a kind of a little bit of a background, uh, most likely uh, many, many scholars think this is that this was probably a hymn in the early church or possibly even a creed that they used in the early church to, to teach about um, the, Christ coming as a baby in the manger and why he did that. And so, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the things that you see here is that um, in this passage, as you see that, that there was something going on in the mind of God the Father and in the, God, in the mind of God the Son. And that what, we're, what we get here both in both Christ's humiliation and his exaltation is we see that there was one kind of one thing that both of them had on their mind as they went, as Jesus went to the cross and as, as God the Father exalted his Son is that they had one thing to, that they wanted to express to us, and that is, is the glory of God. You know, that Christ would be exalted, that everyone would, would acknowledge the name of Christ, and that what? To the glory of God the Father. So Christ does his work in order to glorify the Father, and the Father glorifies the Son. And they both glorify the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a, and they, they both are working. There's this unity within the Godhead, and it's all to, for the glory of God and for the honor of Christ. And so, so the apostle is going to give us, like, he's going to show us the humiliation of Christ as Christ comes from the heights of heaven, and he stoops down to come to earth. And then as he stoops down to come to earth, it says that he empties himself, and then that second stage is that he becomes a servant. In other words, a servant without rights. He gives up his rights as a servant. He, was, he had a whole board in his ear. That was the idea of the Old Testament doulos. And then he even goes lower, and it says that he becomes obedient even to the point of death, to, become, to, to die as a criminal. Uh, it would be like going to the, going to the um, gas chamber or, or electric chair. And so he's showing us the stages of his humiliation and showing what was driving that was that Christ was looking upon something other than himself as he went, came down from the heights of heaven. And it says, then he kept going lower and lower and lower. And then God exalts him higher and higher and higher. And so you see, so there's this, this going down to go up. And, that, and that's the picture we have here uh, in the mindset of Christ as he, as he comes down to earth. And we know that because in this passage it says he was in the form of God. It doesn't mean, that idea of form, the, the word there actually means he's God. He's equal with God. He, he has, uh, like in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. And now then he says, and the word was God. The same, and, 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 it says, and it says, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Uh, or Hebrews 1.3, he's the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. And he, think of this, and Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. So as when Jesus is born as a baby, think about it, here is humanity. In the womb of Mary... While at the same time, he's the word of God and he's, he's upholding the world at the same time. He never stops becoming God. It doesn't say that Jesus emptied his godhood. 
but he laid aside the free exercise of his attributes. And in, I mean, think about, I mean, so here it is, is that he's in perfect communion with the Father as the Son of God, but at the same time, as a baby, he's truly human. He's crying. He needs to nurse. He's doing all the things that babies do when they're born and, and you know, needing attention and so forth and so on. He's growing in his humanity, but at the same time, he's deity and he doesn't change. In other words, he's still, that, he's still omnipotent. He's still omniscient in his deity. And now we, you know, it, it, to try to explain the incarnation would be impossible in a sense because we can't really understand what's it like being like God. Well, it means to have all the attributes of God. <laughs> The Son of God has all those attributes, and at the same time, he's got this humanity, and we're going like, what, what happened? Why did he do that? Well, it says that he, 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 he did something. In other words, the majesty of heaven, it would be like, for example, why would, why would Jesus want to leave a home like that? You know, uh, when we're growing up, I remember as a teenager thinking, I can't wait to do what? Can't wait to leave home. <laughs> This is not fair the way mom and dad expect us to do certain things and these chores and so I can't wait to leave home. Guess what? Jesus was not waiting to leave heaven. It was a perfect, there's this, there's this, there's this inexpressible joy in the presence of God the Father and the Son, and they're delighting each other. Proverbs 8 says that the Son is setting as wisdom and he's rejoicing in the presence of God. So there's this perfect home. It'd be like, Living in the Caribbean with no, you know, just like, oh, man, sun, no, no storms, just a beautiful scenery all the time. In other words, there's this perfect harmony in heaven. Here God is, God the Son, and he's, he's not doing this because, hey, you know, I'm just bored. I need something in my life. There's something, there's something missing in my life. And what do we do? When something's missing, we want to change something, right? There was nothing there to do that. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. So there's this beautiful picture of Christ and his, his harmony and oneness with the Father and his equality with the Father was not something that it says he didn't grasp. But you notice that verse in verse 6 there, it says that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The idea there is that he wasn't holding on to his, 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 his free exercise of his power as God. When Jesus came to earth, it wasn't like he came to earth with a halo on. He looked like you and me. In fact, it basically it says there was nothing in Jesus that attracted people. It wasn't like he walked around and there's, you know how in the movies, he walks around and everybody goes, whoa. He was working in the backwoods of his, the carpenter shop and, and for 30 some years and nobody knew it. In fact, when he started going out preaching, he said, isn't this the carpenter's son? What's he doing here? They were questioning him. And so this first step in his humiliation is this, as it says, he emptied himself. He basically let go of what he deserved as God. When he came to earth, think about it, the, the, the end read this, no vacancies. I mean, think about it. There was no rolling out the red carpet for Jesus. You would think so, right? 
This is the Son of God. This is the second person of the Trinity. This is the Messiah coming. No red carpet. In fact, what's he do? He borrows a baby bed from, an, from a, what we think cattle or ox, whoever, whatever. He ba- baby, it's a borrowed bed. He needed to preach. What does he do? He borrows a boat. He needs, uh, he needs a place to, to sleep because foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He had to borrow a house. And when they ask him about his taxes, you haven't paid the head tax. Guess what? He borrowed the tax money from a fish. He's always borrowing. He needed to ride into Jerusalem as the Son of God. Guess what? He borrows a donkey. And you're like... He needed a room in order to celebrate the Last Supper, which we take for so easily we forget. He had to borrow a room to do that. And then when he dies, guess what? He has to borrow a tomb. Now, this is the, the, this is the Son of God. The one who deserves... I mean, when, if we saw Jesus in his glory, we'd fall on our face right now. And yet when he comes, this was the reception he got. He came into his own, and his own received him not. And he's just, and you're thinking like, no, no. Why would he do that? Why would Jesus stoop that low? I mean, he's in the heights of glory and majesty. And the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Jesus said when Isaiah wrote that in John chapter 11, he says he wrote that about me. (laughs) They're worshiping Jesus. And Jesus is saying, no, I'll volunteer. The son, I'll come to earth and I'll die for them. And we're going like, that's condescension. That's that's bowing. That's giving up his rights. Because he, you know, Jesus could have said, you know, in fact, you remember when uh, Peter struck off the ear of Malchus? Remember what Jesus said? Put your sword up. He says, if I want to call 12 legions of angels, they'd be here in a second. They'll wipe out everybody. You know, we think, you know, we look around and say, well, I don't know what to do. You know, guess what? Jesus, just one word from Jesus' lips would have wiped out everyone there. All the Sanhedrin, all the, the Roman soldiers, whoever they were. So, so here he is. He's stepping down in his humiliation. And then he goes and he says he empties himself, not of godhood, but he empties himself by taking on something else. The idea here is that in verse 7, but he made himself nothing. In other words, Jesus didn't come and say, you know who I am. You can't treat me that way. You can't spit in my face. You can't rip out my beard. You can't beat me. I'm the son of God. He became nothing. He didn't didn't say, I demand my rights. (laughs) Of anyone that could have demanded their rights, Jesus could have, right? And he didn't. And you're going like, what's going on here? It's that he's emptying himself in verse 6 and verse 7. And he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. So so his dissension, he comes to earth. That's really the greatest distance between heaven and earth. And then he becomes a man. And then he becomes what? A servant. He even goes even lower there. He he lays aside his, his rights and then he becomes a servant. Basically, think about the things that when Jesus was, um, you know, it says that in Isaiah 53, 2, and I'll read this passage because it's so uh, appropriate here. For he grew up before him like a young plant, 
Like a root out of dry ground, he had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So he wasn't this Hollywood star with a rainbow around his head. I mean, Jesus got tired. Do you realize that Jesus got tired? And he got so tired one time as he, after he fed the 5,000, it says he got so tired he fell asleep. And they had to wake him and shake him just to get him up. And yet we know from Psalm 121.1 what? God neither slumbers nor sleeps. But Jesus was sleeping. Why? Because he's truly man. And he hungered, and guess what? He told the disciples, would you go out into some place? I think it was Samaria. Would you go and get something for me to eat? I'm, I'm hungered. I've hungered. And then when he was thirsty, what did he do? He asked the woman of Samaria, I need, I need something to drink. He's truly man. He's truly human. He's truly God. He's truly man. He's God-man. And it's, we can't wrap our minds around that because we can't really understand what it would be like <laughs> to be one person with two natures, divinity, deity, and humanity. And yet they're, 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 they're separate, and yet they're not, they're not mixed. They're, you know, he's one person. And, and so Jesus is he's voluntarily humbling himself. And then he takes this third step, and the Father says, well, you need to go. You, part of this becoming the Savior was to go to the cross and to die. And not just to die any death, it was to die on the cross. It was to die as if you were a terrorist or a criminal. That's what they, they didn't, you could, if you were a Roman citizen, you couldn't be crucified. But you could if you were a murderer or you were not, uh, you knew you weren't a Roman. In fact, the word, the word crucify or, or even the word cross, you couldn't even mention it in court. A Roman tribe, a, a Ro, tri, typically in a Roman court, they weren't, when they pronounced the death sentence for being on the cross, you know, that you're going to die by the cross, you, it was like you were swearing or you were cursing. It'd be like me cursing up here. That's how, that's how offended people would be if you mentioned the cross in their presence. Because it was such an ugly death. It was something that was only meant for the, the lowest scum of the earth. The lowest of the lowest. And so Jesus is, he's, he's, and he does that, and it says that he, he says this to the Father. He basically, he, you know, when he's praying in, one, in Psalm 40, one of the passages, that talk, it talks about Jesus saying, I delight to do thy will. Oh, my God, thy law is in my heart. Now, all I can say, the only thing I can understand about that is that God loves us awful lot to do that, right? I mean, I would have a hard time doing that for the closest friend, I would hope I would do, be willing to do that for my, my, my family. But Jesus is doing that for who? While we were yet sinners, enemies of God, he goes to the cross. And he's humbling himself. He's going low, and he's going low, and he's going low. And you're saying, wait there, I don't understand this. And Jesus is saying, the Son of Man came not to be served, but what? To serve there's some dignity about being a servant of the Lord. You know, Isaiah 40, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 52 talks about the servant of the Lord. We think of servant, servanthood as, as an ugly term, right? Well, I don't have to be anyone's servant. I don't have to wash any feet. And when the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest, guess what? That 
particular argument took place right before Jesus. As they're coming in, somebody needs to wash feet. Guess what? Not me. I'm Peter. Hey, I've been up on the mountain with Jesus. Well, I'm John, and, you know, hey, I've, I asked to be on the right, the right hand of Jesus when he goes, comes into glory. And all the other disciples are saying, hey, you think you're so big and you think you're so great. Hey, I think I should be the one that, that, that you should wash my feet. And Jesus says, the greatest among you is what? The servant of all. And he gets down on his knees and he washes those stinky feet. I mean, they had to be dirty because they wore sandals. Have you worn sandals like in the summertime and you, your feet get so filthy and grimy and stinky? And you take those things off and there's Jesus washing your feet. That's the picture we have of the servant of God. And, and so the application here for us is this. Guess what? If humility, what humility looks like is humility says there isn't anything too low for me to do as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if they call the master, what? Beelzebub. What about those who are in his house, right? Matthew chapter 10, verse 25. So most of our struggles, I know most of my struggles as a Christian have been wanting to be served rather than to serve. Every time I think, well, I deserve to be treated better. <laughs> Guess what? The Lord just stomps on my stinking pride. And just lowers me just to another notch. You know, uh, now I'm, I want to tell this story because I think this is true of a lot of young men. And Cody, you don't have to listen to this if you don't want to. But you know, young boys, when they grow up in their mommy's home, mommy washes their clothes. Mommy cooks their meals. Mommy cleans up their mess. And that probably happens to girls too, but I think boys more so. And then when, when the, when, when, when Johnny gets married, guess what Johnny thinks? His wife's going to do that. And most men are going to ha hear this from their wives if they haven't heard it already. Johnny, I'm not your mom. You know, I didn't come to serve you. I mean, I'll serve, but, you got, but it's a mutual thing here, right? You know, uh, Jesus is basically saying it's more blessed for us to serve. That there's nothing lower, there's nothing wrong about that because that's the mind of Christ. Because the mind of Christ is humility, putting the interests of others before my own. And that's hard to do, I'll have to admit, because that really tears into my selfishness. I, I do like my, my, you know, it's like this, you know, you like your, I have this comfy chair at home. I love that comfy chair. Don't bother my comfy chair. That's my comfy chair because when I, when I have a, need a nap, I get in that thing, I push it back, and boy, I tell you, there's nothing like that, just taking that one wonderful nap, you know? And yet that's, Jesus is saying, you know, you give up something in order to give something, right? And he's giving. He's not taking. A servant is giving and after he gives, there's this delight that Jesus has because he knows that one person is very pleased with what he says. The Father. His eyes are on the Father. Can you imagine the Father looking at Jesus and saying something like this? My Jesus, I love thee. But I really love you now. When I look at your willingness to be obedient to something that you didn't have to do, in order to redeem my people. 
And the father is, is delighting in his son. And the son's delighting in the father. And there's this beautiful picture of harmony between the two. And what happens in verse 9 as Jesus has, has died on the cross, does, what does God the Father do? He raises Jesus from the dead. He's declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection. And what does Jesus begin to do? Not just serving, not just glorifying his Father, but Jesus becomes a servant to us even in the resurrection. Did you know that? God raised him, what? For our justification. So that we would know we're justified, that we are, if we've trusted in Christ as our Savior, then it's as if we've never sinned. And you're going like, wait there, I know that's, I know better than that. All that means is God wiped out our, our dirty record. That's what justification means. He declares us righteous, not because we're, we're righteous. He just wiped out, the penalty of our debt was wiped out on the cross. And then all the righteousness of Christ, in other words, the bank account of heaven was put on our account. So as a Christian, when I pray in the name of Jesus, I'm praying, Lord, I need some of those funds. <laughs> now, it might not be monetary. It just may just mean, I may, need, I may need, I need a friend. Lord, would you send help? Guess what? Somebody knocks on your door and they say, you know, hey, I was just thinking about you and wanted to pray with you. That's help. God sent the help. See, it's very, pra- see, the incarnation is very practical, right? It's God putting Flesh, and in not just putting on flesh, but then what does God do? When he saves us, sanctification is what? Becoming like Christ, enfleshing Christ's life in us. So that all that began, we begin to think more like Christ and saying, how can I serve another person? How can I be in a place of service? So what does the Father do? He does three things in the ascension. I'm going to go through these real quick. The Father, it says, super exalts Christ. You notice that? Therefore, when you see therefore, you know what? Because of what happened, Jesus, what Jesus did, God has highly exalted him. It's the only time in Scripture that that word highly exalted is ever used. He highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him, secondly, the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. And you know that word Lord is Yahweh. That's the Old Testament Yahweh. That was Exodus 3.14. Jesus, Moses at the burning bush. Who are you? I'm, I am that I am. I'm self-existent. I am Yahweh. Guess what? Jesus is the Lord. He is Yahweh. He is the Almighty. God has given him not only a name above every name, And in fact, it says that when God exalted Christ, it exalted him far above all the heavens. We know God's in heaven, but all the heavens. That's the way it reads in Hebrews 7, 26. It says he was exalted above the heavens. Ephesians 4, 11, he was ascended far above all heavens and he may fill so that he may fill all things. Um, And you just you could just go on and on because so when a person's saved, guess what? That if you will confess with thy mouth. Jesus as what? Yahweh, Lord. (laughs) And believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Why? On what basis, on what authority is that God say that? The name of Jesus. He is Yahweh. He is God. And what God says goes. God is good all the time, right? All the time God is good. See, Yahweh is... 
Jesus is saying he's given the name that's above every name. And whether people want to acknowledge it or not, someday we're going to hear every tongue and every knee will bow. Some willingly, and there might be a few or a lot that are unwillingly, but every knee will have to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. They'll have to, basically by doing that, they will have to say all the idols, all the things that we have put up before God, all of those things are idols and worthless. And Jesus Christ is Lord. And the practical application of this is this. Have the mind of Christ. How how does that happen? Well, it starts when we acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then what happens is that because Jesus Christ is Lord, guess what? He poured out the Holy Spirit and gave gifts to every one of you, me included. (laughs) We all have gifts. Where did those come from? Because Jesus is Lord. He's sovereign. We have have the fruit of the Spirit. Humility is one of the fruits. Where did that come from? That come from God. And you say, well, put on the mind of Christ. He's just saying, put on the mind of humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's humility. For theirs is what? The kingdom of God. And, and you know, the, the wonderful thing about this is that it's, it's Jesus is basically saying, I want you to do this, but just wanting to remind you that I, ha- I have all authority and I've also given the grace and the ability for you to do this. You know, sometimes I, I look at Scripture and I'll read it and I'll say, Lord, there's just no way. I mean, you're asking me to do something utterly impossible in my flesh. And you know what Jesus' answer is? You're right. It's impossible in the flesh. You need, you need the Spirit of God. And that's why we cry out, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. That's humility. Lord, I need you. I need you. I need you. I need you. And in those moments, those are the times that God sends help in those moments. Why? Because God is opposed to the proud. Because, see, proud people don't think that there's any need to serve anybody, right? God's opposed to the proud, but what happens? But he gives grace to the humble. When you say, when you're on your knees and when you're at your lowest and you say, Lord, I need help, guess what? That's where we should be all the time. (laughs) I just don't know it. I I tend to think that, Lord, if everything's going okay and I've got money in the bank, I've paid my bills, uh, my car's not broken down, I don't have to pay, I'm not getting taken by a mechanic, um, and everything's going right, that that all of a sudden God must, you know, Lord, you know, I'm on top, I'll I'll call you if I need you. (laughs) Wrong answer. (laughs) And what does God do? God uses our circumstances, what? To humiliate us. To lower us. And as he lowers us, guess what? He brings us closer. I remember my dad. I I love love it. You know, I have to thank him when I get to heaven because I didn't thank him at the time. But I remember him. I got in a fight one time. I I don't know. Maybe I told this story. Did I tell this story? Okay. I don't know if I, I, I was fighting over a girl, so that's even worse. And it wasn't Chris, because I didn't know Chris yet. So this is going to get, I'm going to dig, I'm going to dig this hole deep. Uh, but anyway, so uh, anyway, I get in this fight. I, and the, the problem with the fight is this. I started the fight. That's even worse, because I was a preacher's kid. 
And I just remember my dad, when he came home from work, and he was working in the coal mines at the time, and he was preaching on the weekends and during the week if there was a revival. And he came home, he says, son, you know what you're going to have to do? And I said, no, I don't know what I'm going to do. I said, it was his fault. I mean, you know, kind of. <laughs> he was taking my girl. And dad said, son, you're going to go and apologize to him. Oh, Dad, you can't, you can't be real. Give me a break. Dad, I mean, I, I mean, not only did I start the fight, he beat me up. <laughs> I mean, if I'd won, maybe I would feel a little bit better, you know, at least to have a little dignity. But Dad says, no, you're going. I said, but I don't want to talk to John. Is that one? John Wooten. I still remember his name. And so uh, I, the next, he says, you're going tomorrow, son. And, I, man, that was the worst night of sleep I ever had thinking about having to face so-and-so. But when I did, that was a humbling experience, guess what? But I thank my dad for that for one reason, because John and I became friends through that. Neither one of us. <laughs> so the point is, but, but, but the lesson was I got humbled. You know, I did get humbled. But, you know, it was, it was good for me to be humble because I, I learned a lesson about, you know, th there's sometimes it's good to eat crow. Especially if in that process you learn something about humility and about caring about others. And, and in, in a way it was, it was submitting to my father because I knew, boy, you know, my dad said I needed to do that and I wanted to please my dad, at least at that time. Uh, there were other times I didn't want to. But, but the point is, is that what Paul is telling us here is as we look at what Christ did, he laid aside, because I could have said, well, you know, I have rights here. And, you know, his home and dad says, well, I have rights too. I'm your dad. But the point is, the, he laid aside his rights. The things that he had all of reason not to give up, he gave up in order to save us. And to make us his dear children, to be able to pour. Think about it. In order to open up the bank account of heaven so that when you and I die, you know, we all die with nothing and nothing. I mean, we can't take it with us. You know, somebody says, well, how much are you worth when you die? Well, you're worth nothing because, you know, we don't take any of that. There's no U-Hauls at, you know, funerals. And I've had many of them. There were no U-Hauls. Point is, it, no matter what you, but you know how, how much you are worth? you got the bank account of heaven that you can withdraw from. And the beautiful thing about the bank account of heaven is this, is that the treasures of heaven, the more you take, it never diminishes anything. I mean, think about it. You're an eternal trillionaire in Christ. All the riches of heaven, and God says, you can take all the withdrawals you want. Now, Leon, you're a banker. You know, now, hey, if, I, if you just said, hey, John, you can take all, all the money you want here. We, we, got, a, we got a whole vault for Wow, and you say, and, and I keep taking it, and you say, but it doesn't diminish. The Brink's truck just comes and replenishes freely. That doesn't happen, of course, but, <laughs> but, but, but that's heaven's bank account. Because we become heirs and joint heirs with Jesus. Jesus did that in order to, not only just to pay the penalty for my sin, but to open the treasures of heaven and to make me co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And that was all because he was a servant of the Lord and he wanted to please his Father in heaven. May God give us this mind as we look at the next text because he's going to say, therefore, next week. He's going to say, okay, now, because of this, therefore, 
He wants us to work out something. He wants to see that life being reproduced in the community around us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who was, who was rich and became poor for us that we might be made, that we might receive his riches. We pray this in Jesus' name.